in a big part of our vision and values, we talk about being an externally focused church, outward facing and missional. We're trying to seek gospel transformation in our lives and in the lives of everyone that we meet. So that means being involved in the lives of people all around us, in our neighborhoods, our schools, our workplaces. And what we're trying to do is bring the good news of Jesus Christ, but also push back the effects of sin and darkness in this world. A couple decades ago, I finished seminary, and I took a job at a church as an assistant minister. At the time, I had passion for theology and passion for the church. I wanted to wake up sleeping Christians, nominal Christians, challenge them, make sure they had right beliefs, and that they understood the importance of church discipline. Three years after taking this job, I realized that I only had friends inside the church. The only people I really knew were those who went to church and agreed with me. If I had planted a church almost 20 years ago, it would have been to keep weak Christians out. Many of you would not have made the cut. But when I started Christ Church Vienna with many of you seven years ago, I was desperate to have an externally focused and outward-facing missional church. Church. Oh, church? Yep. Good. Okay. I was desperate for us to be an externally focused church. What changed? Two things. One, I became friends with actual humans who didn't go to church. And as a result of getting to know people who didn't agree with me, didn't believe in the God I did, I actually became less anxious about doctrinal distinctions, a Baptist versus a Presbyterian, and less anxious about outward purity. And I became far more interested in humans, in people, and desperately wanting them to know the Jesus that I knew. Besides becoming friends with people outside of the church, I second came to understand the gospel more deeply and apply it in my life more fully. I'd always believed I was sinful, saved by grace, but I don't think I'd really pushed that deep enough in. If you really grasp the depth of the gospel message, it will make you more humble, and it will push you out in compassion for all people. There's no grounds for superiority. There's no grounds for avoiding people in the gospel. Thankfully, those two things took place in my life. So when I moved back to Vienna, and we started doing ministry here, I began to look at this place and everyone that I met as best as I could through Jesus' eyes, which meant I didn't come to Vienna just to see what I could get out of it. I didn't interact with people to see what I could get from them. I wanted to see what God wanted to do here and in their lives. My desire was for everyone to know God in the way that I've been able to experience him, to know the love and grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. The gospel, Jesus himself, will change us if we let him. He will change us and our approach to every person. He will call us out of ourselves to follow him. What he does with Matthew, he wants to do with us, and he calls us to do the same as him. Let's read what we have in Matthew chapter 9, this short story that many of you know. In verse 9, we read, as Jesus passed on from there, so he's in Capernaum, the town that he lives in, doing a lot of ministry and mission in. 
As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to Matthew, come follow me, and Matthew arose and followed Jesus. So most of you have, if you've been in churches, have heard stories of tax collectors, but if you haven't or if you aren't familiar with these, tax collectors were people that were outsiders in that religious culture. They were outsiders for a number of reasons. The history went like this. At that time, Rome was in control of Palestine, of Israel, and much of the Mediterranean world. And they would set up their little, uh, you know, kind of political uh, remnants in these different out outlying posts, and they would bring tax collectors from the local people. They would find somebody in the community who was willing to be a trader, a collaborator, and they would guarantee them protection and money. And your job as a tax collector was to raise money from your people. Taxes were 30 to 40% in that ancient world. But the tax collector was given a sum. Like if you were the tax collector in Capernaum, it might be 100,000 gold pieces. I, I don't know, 100,000, let's say. But the people didn't know how much you were responsible for raising, so you could raise 200,000 and keep 100 for yourself. And you had the sword of Rome behind you. Extortion and bribes were rampant. Tax collectors were considered traitors, collaborators. They were incredibly rich at the expense of the poor. They were thieves. Their reputation was horrible. You can read rabbinic writings, not just the Bible, rabbinic writings about tax collectors. They talk about one tax collector who had people tortured and killed because they weren't paying their taxes. There's another story about 100 years after Jesus of an old woman being beaten by a tax collector because her family hadn't paid their taxes. One rabbinic writing says that you can find the, the two people at the pious extremes in life. One is a rabbi and the other is a tax collector. If we're going to get a sense of how tax collectors were viewed, we have to ask this question ourselves. Who is it that we, that you, despise most? Our culture is very divided. All you have to ask is this question. The problem with this country is you fill in the blank. Problem with this country is Republicans, the media, cultural elites. Problem with this country is immigrants. What Jesus does with his tax collector is the equivalent of if Jesus were walking on the downtown mall in Charlottesville a year and some months ago, when there's a white nationalist rally going on. And Jesus walks up to the leader, waving his Confederate flag, and says, you, come follow me. And later that night, Jesus is hanging out at a party with that guy and all of his Nazi friends. A little less extreme, all right, that's an extreme, right? But let, let's take it down a step and say, who is it you just don't like? Whether it's the sort of people you don't like or actual people you don't like. What do you do with people you don't like? You avoid them. You don't hang out with them. You don't go to their events. You don't invite them to your house. But Jesus does. Matthew is the ultimate outcast despised, farthest from religion and goodness and God. He's the sort of person all of us would avoid. But Jesus goes to him, and he says, follow me, and then he hangs out with him. 
What's amazing is what's not said in this story. What's not said is, or, or it's the thing that, that we don't get here, is Matthew doesn't suspect anything's awry. Jesus is a pious, religious rabbi guy, healing people, miracles, everyone's following him, listening to him. Matthew does not suspect an ulterior motive or a trap. Why not? Why? Because he'd actually seen Jesus. If he was a prominent tax collector in Capernaum, he probably knew just about everyone. Jesus had lived there for some time, had already been healing people, had already forgiven sins, had already done a lot of amazing things. In fact, Matthew was probably hoping one day Jesus would talk to him. He didn't suspect a trap. I don't know if you've ever been trapped by somebody. I was. We had just moved to Richmond, and we were getting to know people. We went over to somebody's house for dinner. They had a bunch of other people over. It was a barbecue. And there was a guy there a couple years older than me who had gone to college with me, but I didn't know him because I think we missed each other by a year. I, I thought he was pretty cool, and uh, a week later or two weeks later, he called me up and said, hey, you want to get coffee sometime? So we met at the local Starbucks, and we're sitting there chatting for about 20 minutes. And then he asked if I have anybody that is, that is watching over my finances, doing my investments for me. He, he was an investment guy, and he wanted to know if I needed somebody. The next 30 minutes was me answering questions and waiting to get out of there, and I honestly never followed up with him again because he had duped me. I thought he wanted to be a friend. I was looking for a friend. He was looking for a sale. Are people on your street, in your office, in your school, hoping that you'll stop and talk to them? If you invited them into your house, would they be suspicious, assuming you're just trying to make a sale? Or are you the kind of person who is a consistent friend with all sorts of people? Friendship is one of the keys to being externally focused and missional. Honest, honest, authentic, consistent friendship. That means caring for people over time, not just if they agree with you. Don't be afraid to be friends with people who, who don't do the Jesus thing. Don't be afraid to be friends with people whose lives are sinful. Remember that you're a sinner too. And there is no difference before God. Being missional can simply be stopping to listen to somebody, talking to them like Jesus does, becoming friends with them, inviting them into your life and entering theirs, not just inviting them to church. Jesus enters Matthew's life. When we read this in verse 10 and 11, when he says, as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, Matthew's house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees, the religious leaders, saw this, they said to Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now what's going on here is a pretty major feast. This is not an average dinner party, okay? In the Palestinian world, you only reclined at festivals, at banquets. Normally, Jews in the Palestinian world ate sitting on chairs. 
But if they were having a wedding feast or it was Passover or Yom Kippur, one of the big festival tabernacles days, or a prominent guest had come to their home, they would throw a feast, kill the fattened calf, as the story goes in the prodigal son. They would bring everyone in they knew to honor the guest. So there they are, leaning in this massive banquet. The fattened calf has been killed, the wine is being poured out, and Jesus is hanging out with other tax collectors and sinners, the only people that Matthew knows. And the Pharisees say, Jesus, what are you doing? The ancient Near East, in the ancient Near East, having food, having a meal with somebody was contractual. It was the equivalent of a legal contract. It bound people together. It had covenantal implications. It said, I accept and I approve of you. We are one on some level. And the Pharisees are saying, Jesus, you're a rabbi. Don't you know what you're doing? You're saying you accept Matthew and his tax collector friends? On top of that, you're making yourself unclean. The rabbinic writing said if a tax collector entered your house, your house was unclean. If you went into a tax collector's house, you couldn't go to the temple the next day. You were unclean. What are you doing, Jesus? You know, we all have pharisaic tendencies. We all have some part of us that has a pharisaical response to certain things. When I was in high school, there were certain people I tried to avoid. There was this one group that don't exist quite the same now, and maybe they didn't exist a generation before me, but they were the kids, they all had long hair, and uh, they had these black t-shirts they all wore that had like grotesque skeletons on them, and they had these words across the top that said things like anthrax or megadeth, slayer. They smoked cigarettes, and I knew they got wasted. They were the heavy metal kids. You know what I did with heavy metal kids? I avoided them. They were far from Jesus, I know. But one young life leader invited this kid, Lou, who was part of the heavy metal crowd. He was shorter. He had a learning disability. But he had this scowl on his face and the T-shirt, and he was smoking cigarettes all the time. And I had nothing to do with Lou. But he got invited to a young life camp. He got welcomed in and loved by the other kids in the cabin. And he met Jesus. And a few months later, still with his tattoo on his sleeve, and he was carrying his Bible around, just wanted to know more about Jesus. And I just wanted to avoid people like him, not thinking that they would ever want to know him. My Pharisaic tendency caused me to avoid people or assume they wanted nothing to do with Jesus. I especially assumed that of the popular kids, the party crowd in school. Joel was just such a kid. He was really good at football. He was pretty smart. He hung out with girls that were really pretty. And he also went to all the parties. I basically never talked to Joel. I was scared of him. And assumed that if anybody brought up Jesus, he would mock them and reject it right away. A couple years after we graduated from high school, Joel came back and at this one college fellowship thing, he approached me and two other guys. He said, Mike, Kevin, Johnny, why didn't you tell me about Jesus? <laughs> He'd gone off to Georgia Tech, and at some fellowship group that somebody had invited him to, he heard about the gospel for the first time. He began to follow Christ, and he said, why didn't you guys tell me? Oh, I didn't know who you were. I, I assumed he would want nothing to do with Jesus. 
Do you have that same Pharisaic tendency? You know, the majority of people who reject Christianity today have had an experience with the church and with Christianity. In other words, they're rejecting what they know, and they don't like what they know. David Kinneman, in his Barna study, suggested that in 1996, 15% of those outside the church had a negative view of the church. 20 years later, in 2007, 40% of those outside the church had a negative view of the church. The description at 70 to 80% is that Christians are hypocritical and intolerant and overly political. And many of us in the church hear that, and we're filled with fear. We put up walls. The question I'm asking is, are we aware of our off-putting, pharisaical side of our own Christianity? If we are going to do gospel mission, we've got to eat with tax collectors and sinners. And so the question is this, would you, like Jesus, be invited to the party? And if you went to the party, maybe it's easy for you to get invited to the party, would they even know you're different? Matthew invited Jesus, and I think everyone knew he was different. Jesus responds to the Pharisees in verses 12 and 13, or verse 13, sorry, uh, 12 and 13, that, yeah, when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. He then quotes from Hosea, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Then he goes on to say, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus quickly turns the tables on the religious leaders. He says, go and learn what this means. Do you know how, do you know how, 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 how much of an affront that was to them? He's quoting Hosea, the Old Testament prophet, as if they'd never heard of it. He's like, have you guys ever read Hosea? Are you familiar with him? He's an Old Testament prophet. Let me tell you about him. Jesus is being pretty sarcastic here. He's sticking it to them, saying, go and read your own scriptures. They say, I desire mercy. It's the word chesed, meaning loving kindness and grace, not religiousness. What's your reputation with those outside of the church? Is it loving kindness, compassion and humility and generosity? Or is it, oh, that's the churchy guy? Jesus says that he comes for the sick and the sinners. And that's who he spends time with. The broken and the needy. The blind, the leper, the bleeding woman, the demon-possessed guy, tax collectors, widows, the poor, outsiders. It's not, it's not that Jesus didn't come for the powerful and the religious. It's that the most broken and the most needy are the ones who see their need of Jesus. Matthew had probably heard Jesus a number of times in Capernaum. Maybe he'd watched him in the story that's right before this, healing and forgiving the sins of the paralytic. And maybe he'd thought, I need that, but my sins are far worse than that paralyzed guy. In a story that's told earlier, Jesus heals a centurion servant. A centurion was a Roman soldier's servant. 
he probably knew the centurion based on collaboration. He probably thought, he helped that enemy of the state. He helped that Roman soldier. Maybe he'll help me. Or am I a traitor? That's worse than even being a Roman soldier. It's possible you could be in here today feeling a little bit like that. Like you look around a room like this and think, do I really fit in? People are going to suspect that you don't know how to do the right things. They're going to know you're not a Christian, right? Are they going to smell the unbelief coming out of you? If you ever are around Christians in a small group, in a church setting, and you feel like you don't fit in, remember this. With Jesus, it's not the insiders. It's not the religious and the good who are closest. They're the ones most in trouble. It's the outsiders he spends time with and who get him. The gospel, Jesus, is for everyone at any time in your life. You just need to see your need of him and respond by following him. The gospel is very clear. Jesus came for everyone. But he also changes everything for everyone. Notice all the ways in this short little story that Jesus restores and saves Matthew. He gives dignity to Matthew just by talking to him. Jesus is a prominent rabbi, a holy man, if you would. The fact that he stops and talks to Matthew, the sort of person everyone avoided. Nobody talked to Matthew. Jesus stops and talks to him, giving him the dignity of just, you matter. I care about you in a culture that avoided him all the time. That simple act was restorative emotionally. Then Jesus attends a dinner party at his house. That ancient culture valued hospitality so that if you were the one who got to host a prominent person, especially a rabbi, it elevated your status in the community. Just by going to his house, Jesus was actually giving, giving Matthew an honor. He was elevating him in Capernaum, saying, value him. He's worthwhile. He's restoring Matthew socially to those outside of his tax collector circles. And then by eating with him, he draws the ire of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, which basically means they had directed all their anger and shame at, at Matthew and tax collectors, but now they're directing it at Jesus. And Jesus takes it. He takes their shame for them. The gospel is about holistic restoration. Not just spiritually being forgiven of our sin, being saved to go to heaven. It's about physical and social and emotional restoration and healing. But it is also about spiritual. Remember this. Jesus, when he says, I came for the sick and I came for sinners, is basically saying Matthew is sick. Matthew is a sinner. Jesus didn't go up to the tax booth and say, hey, Matthew, what's going on? Have a good day. Peace. He said, get out of there and come follow me. Stop doing what you're doing. Do not let that tax booth or the money or the prestige or the power be your Lord anymore. 
come and follow me, I will be your Lord. When you're dealing with sinful people and outcasts like tax collectors, you know what religious people do? They disdain them or avoid them. Religious people avoid those who are breaking God's law. Secular people today say, welcome them. We need to approve of everyone. It's only the religious who call it sin. Ignore that. Jesus does something altogether different. He welcomes and spends time with everyone, including the most sinful. But he also calls them to new life in him. Drop everything and follow me. We see this very clearly in John chapter 8. We didn't read it, but it's the story of the woman caught in adultery. What are the responses to a woman caught in adultery? The conservative response is stone her. She's a witch. No, she's not a witch, but she had broken the law. Stone her. Or at bare minimum, if you find somebody who's committing adultery, you avoid them. You don't want to hang out with those sorts of people. You're, you're conservative. You're traditional. You follow all the rules. She doesn't. The liberal response to the woman caught in adultery would have been this. She can do whatever she wants. It's her body. Accept her as she is and approve of whatever she does. Who are you to make up rules? But what does Jesus do with a woman caught in adultery? He loves her. He protects her from these people trying to kill her. He covers her shame and he talks to her as a human. He says, I love you. I care about you. Not just for your body like the men have. I care about you. He accepts her more fully than the most secular person can. And yet he says, go and sin no more. Either I am Lord of your life or you are. I love you. Change. What do we do with people with whom we disagree? Those who reject God? We avoid them? Are we cowards? We don't want to tell them anything more? We just say it's all okay? Gospel mission involves friendships of courage and grace. The grace to love people and be friends with people who don't agree with you. And the courage to call them to new life in Christ because they, like you, need Jesus too. Two things to close, two things to close. Gospel and friends. What does this really look like? Gospel and friends. If we're going to be externally focused people, we need the gospel and we need friends. Is Jesus actually Savior and Lord? Think through the implications of that. If Jesus is actually Savior and Lord, he is the, as Peter said, one name under heaven whereby we shall be saved. We can't hide from that. Can't keep quiet. But if the gospel is really true, if we let it sink in, I'm as sinful as anyone. There's no grounds for superiority. I am not better than the Nazi, 
poor, the Pharisee, or my next door neighbor. I am saved by grace. All of that should drive me to the sort of humility and compassion that changes my approach to myself and everyone else. The gospel and friends. Make friends. It's one of the things we don't do well today. We're too transient. We're too guarded. We're too individualistic. Make friends with people who do and who don't do the Jesus thing. Be extended family. Be externally focused. Be the sort of person who is on their team, regardless of whether they believe in Jesus or not. In his book, Center Church, Tim Keller suggests what's needed for transformation of a community. He writes, when 20 to 25% of a church's people are engaged in organic relational gospel ministry to those outside of the faith, it creates a powerful dynamism that infuses the whole church and extends the church's ability to have an impact on the wider community. In Vienna and Oakton, kind of the wider community, if you would, the zip codes around here, there are 30 to 40 churches. There are 75,000 or more people. And that means there are tens of thousands of people who have no church home and probably don't know Jesus. I want Christ Church Vienna to be a dynamic, impactful force for the gospel in this community. And that means I need, based on the numbers, 20 to 25%, about 50 of you. I don't need the rest of you. 50. And I'll take teenagers. Because look, most of your parents are not going to do this. Are you willing to reach people for Christ? To love them for Christ? Your parents are too scared. Don't be afraid. Live beyond what they did or are doing. But if some of you are willing to take up the challenge, I'll take you too. Fifty people to be externally focused, outward facing, and missional. What is God's plan for total global transformation? What is God's plan for reaching the people in this community? For impacting Vienna? For reaching the people at Marshall or Madison High School? For transforming Lakevale or Mantua or Vienna Woods? You, me, let's pray. God, in this story, I pray that we would see ourselves as Matthew, those far from you, but brought near by your grace and mercy. I pray that the truth of God's grace and love for us would also melt our hard hearts, take away our fear, and our selfishness, and push us out in humility and compassion to love, simply be friends with all sorts of people. For the sake of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.